Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Modern students of Scripture dumb down the power of the New Testament by dealing with the Old Testament as a kind of antiquated fortune cookie. They see a connection between Matthew and Jeremiah and exclaim, You see? Jeremiah predicts Matthew! Even if we suspend reality for a moment and ignore the fact that Matthew had access to Jeremiah before he wrote his book, fortune cookie theology does something far worse. It strips the New Testament of its nuance, functionality, interconnection, and narrative continuity with the Old Testament. In other words, if your understanding of Jeremiah is that he predicts Jesus, you have already shut down the meaning of Matthew's Gospel. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 16 to 18. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 234 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Father. Today we're going to take another short section from Matthew. It's a very interesting text, and it seems that the author is bringing together multiple elements from the Old Testament, again, through the use of narrative function. There are motifs, for example, the dream. And now we have the slaughter of innocents. And then we have another type of function, which is a direct reference from Jeremiah. He's making Jeremiah functional in the text by quoting this verse from Jeremiah chapter 31 about Rachel's lament. It struck me that this whole section of 16 through 18 is not necessary for the narrative. In verse 15, Joseph and Mary and Jesus were in Egypt until the death of Herod. Then we hear about Herod, strangely, because we just left off with his death. Then after the section, it says, and since Herod was dead. So we have this flashback. Narratively, if you wanted to tell the story just of the events, you don't need it here. And if you were going to have it, this isn't a good place to put it because it takes place after the mentioning of Herod's death. So the author is doing something very specific by inserting this section about Herod's treatment of the children in Bethlehem by injecting it into a narrative about Joseph, Mary, and Jesus in Egypt. There's several juxtapositions going on, and we have to keep track of all of them. There's the family in Egypt, then this section of Herod stuck in there in the murder of the innocents. There's Matthew talking about Rachel, but not talking about Rachel from Genesis, talking about Rachel as Jeremiah is talking about Rachel from Genesis. So there's several layers going on at the same time, but it's like Star Trek, three-dimensional chess. And just to be clear, we, I think, assumed this in our opening remarks, but it needs to be stated as we go into this text, 
Matthew is also making Exodus functional because the slaughter of innocents begins in chapter 2 of Exodus when Pharaoh sets out to wipe out the firstborn of Israel. And that story is completed when the Lord of hosts turns the tables and does so to the firstborn of Egypt before the liberation of his people unto bondage in the wilderness under the safety and protection of God's instruction. Right. This answers the question of why this insertion of this passage here, because we have Joseph going down to Egypt and his progeny sitting there, and then we have some king, happens to be Herod, who wants to kill all the firstborn in order to kill not Moses, but Jesus. Matthew is setting up Herod very clearly as a pharaoh. What Matthew is saying is, hey, readers, I know you heard about Pharaoh in Egypt. The king we've got here in Jerusalem, he's also pharaoh. Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. A couple of things I want to say right out of the gate. While it's a fact that Matthew is inserting this trope in order to make Exodus functional, it is also a fact just on the level of narrative, the simple story itself, that this verse amplifies the corruption, the filth, and the ugliness of kingly power being used for a human agenda. This is what the king does. The king is de facto an abuser. And one must always go back to the basic fact that Matthew, like every text in scripture that deals with the king in Israel, the king in Jerusalem, it must be stressed that God is saying, I told you so. This is what you asked for. Remember, Shaul means asked for. You asked for it and you got it. But because I'm a loving God, I'm not going to abandon you to the abyss and darkness of your own desires. I am going to give you an alternative to Herod, whether you like it or not, because I promised your father Abraham that I would do so. And here, that's why the mention of Abraham at the top of the genealogy in chapter 1 is critical. Because despite all of the destruction of that patrilineal heritage, God did not forsake or abandon his promise to his people. Yeah, and if you read this in the narrative order, you know, the despicable nature of Herod, because at the very beginning he says, oh, wise men, go down to Bethlehem and find out what's going on here because I want to worship him also. Then the Magi get nervous. They don't go to Herod. We've talked about this in the previous passage. And they take off. They go back home. Then Herod gets angry and kills all the babies in Bethlehem. This shows that that initial desire of Herod was corrupt, that what he is concerned about here is his honor. He saw that he was mocked by the wise men, and that's why he killed the children. This is according to what Matthew is narrating here. So his initial interest in this child in Bethlehem, we can see was only feigned interest, ultimately a way of securing his own future, his own line, his own power as a king slash pharaoh. Now in Exodus, when God strikes the firstborn of Egypt, it's in order to act out 
and to foreshadow the wisdom of his instruction that vengeance belongs to him and that vengeance is meted out eye for eye. I know it's very popular to talk about how terrible the commandment about an eye for an eye is, but that's all silly nonsense. You don't understand scripture, you don't know Hebrew, you haven't paid attention. Because the commandment, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is profoundly wise and profoundly merciful because it puts a limit on vengeance. And anyone who knows anything about blood feuds in the modern world, let alone the ancient world, knows that any commandment that truncates any kind of blood feud is an act of mercy and wisdom. And you have to understand it the way Jesus later in Matthew will talk about the certificate of divorce, because you wouldn't simply not kill. I gave you a law that set a limit on your murderous behavior out of mercy in order to achieve the ultimate outcome, which is no murder at all. Now, beyond that, there's another element here. Herod is trying to kill all the male children. Now, if you've been paying attention to chapter one of Matthew, you realize that the male seed, the human male seed, doesn't go anywhere. This reminds me very much of the expression of our Lord that you leave the dead to bury their dead. Herod trying to protect his line by killing other male children seems to me like the dead tending to the dead. Their seed can't produce life. So Herod is trying to fight something he can't see by taking on what he can see. But he can't succeed because ultimately we're not talking about male or female when we talk about God. We're talking about his wisdom, his instruction. How can Herod stop that seed? He can't. So he's doing what every king does. He's lashing out at what he can get his hands on. It reminds me of that beautiful line from Chrysostom's famous Paschal sermon. Hell took a body and met God face to face. It took what it could see and fell upon what it could not see. So powerful. That leads me to think more deeply about the Exodus story because the way that the Passover is interpreted by God himself when he speaks later on in Exodus, he says, I saved your firstborn sons from death by passing over. Therefore, your oldest sons belong to me. We always think about the death of those children in terms of the ones who were killed, but we also have to think about the ones who survived because those have a particular purpose. And I don't mean a particular purpose like people talk about, you know, someone survived an earthquake because God has a special plan for them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying in the story, God says they are then dedicated to me. And what's significant is that there's one child that God, through his angel, assured was not going to die in this Holocaust in Bethlehem, it was Jesus, and he was going to send him to Egypt. And so it's not just about who died, but who was saved. Moses was saved and was sent into a basket. Jesus was saved and sent into Egypt. The Israelites were saved, and the blood was put on the lintels of their house. It's not just about who dies, but who is saved. And that's something that's going to be significant later on in the same passage. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Striking that in Genesis, Rachel is buried in Bethlehem. It's the city of the shepherd. 
which we call the city of David, the king, but more importantly, it's the city of David, the shepherd. We've covered this territory in previous episodes. And now in Bethlehem, which was abandoned by a shepherd who abandoned his station in order to seize power, she now, in a very real sense, is lamenting that situation. At the same time, she's lamenting the captivity. When Jeremiah brings Rachel into the discussion, he's dealing with the captivity in Babylon. Right. He begins the section by saying that there's going to be this return of the people to the land. God is going to reassemble them in the land. And then Rachel is weeping because her children are no more. And Rachel, she's the mother of Joseph and Dan, and we'll talk about that in a minute. She is lamenting because her children, that is the children of Joseph and the children of Jacob, they're not there in the land because they've been taken away. And so this is a counterpoint to what God is going to do in bringing the people back. So she's lamenting because her children are no more. And then God says, don't worry, I'm going to be bringing them back. And not only am I going to bring back the children, but I'm going to bring back the produce of the land. There's going to be a new prosperity in the land. And you no longer have to weep because of this time of deprivation of captivity now there's going to be a return and prosperity and then rachel can end her weeping and of course the text at the same time is bringing egypt into the discussion as a metaphor again of a kind of slavery because we're moving from one type of slavery to a new type of slavery that is actually a positive function but to the extent that rachel was a mechanism of jacob's enslavement to laban which is a counter metaphor to Isaac's comfort under the grace of God through his father. Remember, Isaac always did what he was told. His father arranged his marriage. He never left the land of promise. Whereas Jacob, who wanted to prove himself and flex his muscles, ended up being enslaved to a human being who exploited him for seven years. And Rachel was the mechanism of that enslavement. And then when Rachel did not get pregnant. Instead of looking to God for mercy, she once again understood it in human terms because like Herod, she was interested in the male seed and she blamed her husband. And this offended God. It offended Jacob also, although Jacob is complicit in the sin ultimately because he keeps chasing after the authority and the prestige of men. That's Jacob's problem. He's always striving. People talk about this scene where Jacob wrestles with the angel as a matter of pride, as though it's wonderful that Israel can struggle with God and so forth. But this is nonsense. This is Israel's problem in the Old Testament. Why are you struggling? Why aren't you like Isaac? He didn't struggle. He did what he was told and everything was provided for him. So both Jacob and Rachel, in this sense, are interested in the male seed, even though Jacob scolded his wife when she complained. Hosea in chapter 12 puts it most succinctly, Jacob became a slave for the sake of a woman. So taking Jacob and slavery with Rachel, combining it with Egypt and Herod, the new Pharaoh and the Passover, and you bring them all together in this wonderful stew that Matthew is cooking here in this section, it brings together all these motifs. And I said this last time, when people talk about the prophets predicting what's going to happen in the New Testament, it's very shallow. When you say, oh, it's predictive, what they said then happens. 
it's way too shallow because Matthew is drawing on all these motifs in such a creative, beautiful way and weaving a story out of these lines. If only Hollywood could come up with sequels that were as engaging as Matthew is able to do with all of these different threads. In Hollywood, they just plunk along with the same story over and over again with the same characters. Here, Matthew is able to weave together a motif here, a motif there, and you can start to see the connections, but only if you're paying attention. But what's interesting, Richard, then, is that immediately after this exchange between Rachel and Jacob over her barrenness, she's given a son, and the son's name is Dan, which means judged. So now we know, with some trepidation, that the Lord is acting. And then she's given another son. And the name of the next son is very important in the Gospel of Matthew. It's Joseph. It's Joseph through whom the children of Rachel were led into captivity and bondage in Egypt. So we're not conflating the captivity in Egypt with the captivity in Babylon. But Matthew is drawing parallels between the two. And this is why Rachel can't be consoled. She can't be consoled in Exodus chapter 2 when the children of Joseph are slaughtered by Pharaoh. She can't be consoled in Matthew chapter 2 when all the children in Bethlehem under the age of 2. Bethlehem, the city of the shepherd. The city that was not least in the land of Judah. The city from which David was called and the city David abandoned in the way that he chose his path. Now Rachel, who's entombed in Bethlehem, is again weeping. But there is a consolation. The hope in Jeremiah, the hope in all of the prophets, the hope in Exodus that God would fulfill his promise and rescue his people from captivity is now at hand in Matthew. And Rachel went through this transformation when she realized her sin, that she was the one who named her child judged because she realized that she was judged and then was grateful when another child, in spite of that, was added on to her. He adds on is Joseph. So that was the consolation for the judgment. So we already had a consolation. Joseph was that consolation. And then we have the consolation in Jeremiah. So Rachel weeps because she doesn't know about the consolation. She doesn't understand the consolation. The people there are still trying to explain the consolation to her. She doesn't get it. She doesn't understand how God can and will intervene. And this is what we said, I think, maybe a couple years ago. This Lately, we tend to be remembering discussions we had in the past Ultimately, this is why Rachel can't be consoled because she's not reading scripture and she's not understanding it even if she's reading it. One of our listeners commented, Father Mark, scripture seems to always be referring to scripture. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. And it has to do so for the same reason that any preacher worth his salt mostly tells people on Sunday to read scripture. If you're impressed with the wonderful interpretation you had or the fancy ideas or the impressive theology you're sharing from your sermon, you're doing something wrong. At the end of the sermon, people should know the content of the reading. They should know that they've fallen short and they should know that what they have to do is take action on the content of the reading and go back and read scripture more. There's a reason Christians have a memory of the importance of the Bible. It's because 
classical preachers going back to the ancient world understood that the reading emphasizes the reading. It is self-referential. And so therefore the duty of the preacher is to emphasize the reading. We even talked on Sunday with the epistle from Romans chapter 12, where Paul not only demotes teaching, but demotes it one step removed from prophecy, meaning that in the assembly, the most important thing in the hierarchy of charismata, you begin with prophecy, which is the literal act of reading the prophecy. You read scripture in the assembly. It's not prophecy the way people think about it today. I felt the spirit out my mouth. No, he means the number one action in the hierarchy of the charismata is to read the reading. And then number two is not to explain the reading. Number two is ministry, which is to carry out the instruction of the reading. So first you read the reading in Romans, then you carry out the reading, and then number three is teaching. It's really powerful and it's important because scripture is simple and straightforward. People can hear the reading and act on it without the sermon. We make a big deal out of the sermon because we want to make a big deal out of ourselves. It's so basic and so clear. So that is why scripture refers to scripture and that is what the duty of the preacher is to do. We have to work so hard to convince people that our number one duty is to read the text so that we can memorize the text, so that we can obey the text, so that we can do what the text says we have to do because we were rescued from bondage in Egypt in order to be enslaved to the text of God's teaching. That's what it means to submit to God. You can't submit to God in abstraction. You have to submit to his written instruction and in so doing, submit to your neighbor so that when you submit to your neighbor, it's not a new slavery because you are enslaved by the law of the kingdom to which you were bound in your baptism. So yes, ultimately, this text is referring to itself. Now, when we refer to ourselves in the teaching, we're egotistical. But when the Lord refers to himself, or when scripture refers to itself, it's beautiful. It's not egotistical. Or, let me rephrase that, it is egotistical, but God's ego, unlike ours, is beautiful. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.